Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nest Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 19, our review of last week's ICER public comment session on their assessment of the beta-colic acid and resmeteron. Plus, from the vault, conversation 36.5 from season three. Last July's wrap-up of our conversation about Intercept Pharmaceutical and their release of updated regenerate data on beta-colic acid. This conversation starts by focusing on the lack of empathy our patient advocates perceived in the document, and more importantly, the live meeting. Tony Villiotti describes being astounded when six of 15 committee members voted in the negative to a question about whether these drugs would have an impact on caregivers' lives. Wayne Eskridge raises a different point at which he was, as he put it, set off. When ICER insisted this is not a progressive disease, which at least implies that F1 and F2 fibrosis levels have no significance to patients. After a comment from me about depression and presenteeism in earlier stage fibrosis, Louise Campbell returns to the point about caregiver impact as proof of how insensitive the conversation had been. After Wayne suggests that the key point of the document is not to be empathetic for patients, but to provide arguments for payers who want not to cover medications or at least negotiate the price down. Louise notes that the average U.S. patient costs 1,700 pounds more. Yeah, I said pounds, although we're talking about a U.S. analysis in the earliest stages of the disease. Mike Patel goes on to describe himself as having, and I quote, fallen off his chair, unquote, over the 8-7 to seven vote in favor of resmeterone offering benefit over lifestyle management and, more striking, the 1-14 to 14 vote against beta-colic acid on the same topic. Wayne Eskridge explains the panelists seem to believe that patients who took the medication would ignore lifestyle and diet issues, which he believes to be wrong. I know that there is some history of that behavior with statins and cholesterol, but also that this is a different kind of disease. As the conversation winds down, Louise suggests rephrasing the economic question to ask whether money is better invested in lifestyle or medication, and I answer that in the U.S. we will invest in both simultaneously instead of trading off one for the other. In our first conversation on the ICER preliminary report, GLI Vice President of Liver Health Programs Jeff McIntyre said he appreciated patients having a voice, but noted that that's not the same thing as having a vote. Patient advocates' comments in this conversation make it clear exactly how wide the gap between the two is right now. Fortunately, as Veronica Miller noted during our first ICER report episode, ICER reporting has no impact on FDA decisions, but as we discussed during this conversation, it might have an impact on payers. Progress is a long journey, so let's all keep pushing. And while you do, listen, sit back, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion in our LinkedIn discussion group. So, Tony, you made a comment about empathy in the discussion. How did that work? What, what did that look like? Tony Villiotti. Well, the thing that jumped out at me and that really, you know, kind of set me off is, you know, there were a series of questions that they've asked and voted on during a session. And one of the questions was, if a drug was approved, what would be the impact, and I'm paraphrasing here, what would be the impact on a caregiver? You know, there were 15 voting members at this meeting. Six of those members, which is 40% of, of the voters, said it would have no impact on a caregiver's life. And I found that astounding. Everyone on, on this broadcast knows the impact this disease has not only on a patient, but on the patient's family and those those that, are, that support the patient. Yeah, I was kind of glad I wasn't in the room, I guess, you know, when they went in through that part of it. That's, that's an interesting perspective. Hey, Wayne, you're smiling. Wayne Eskridge. Well, the thing that set me off was basically they were insisting that this was not a progressive disease. F1 and F2 had no significance to patients, and that really bothered me. So 
that was the main thrust of the thing that got my goat, I guess, is that the consequences of rising fibrosis was just dismissed as a non-event. Louise was the person who educated me a long time ago, A, on depression and B, on the issue of presenteeism. And I think presenteeism starts to present itself, you know, early in the disease. You don't, you don't have to get out to advanced fibrosis to have a problem around presenteeism and, and, and quality of life scores. It struck me, now I'm thinking about lack of empathy differently, while they had data available to them, it doesn't seem to me that they took advantage of it or understood it properly. And Wayne, I'm totally tracking with you on that. Louise, before we get into the actual uh, testimony that folks gave and why they gave that and how they felt about the process that day, any questions you want to ask or comments you want to make? Louise Campbell. You've commented on empathy, and I think it's a vital part of all healthcare. Did you feel that when you met for the second time or this panel last Friday that you felt there was more empathy? Had they listened to the concerns raised before? And did you get a sense of any further insight? Because the only people who say it doesn't affect caregivers are people who aren't caregivers, have never been caregivers, or don't see themselves in that paradigm ever being in that situation. So therefore, they can't be empathetic. Uh, I really didn't didn't see that, <laughs> that there was any particular empathy built there. It was a very businesslike situation. I believe of uh, preparing a preparing arguments for the for the insurance companies is how I felt about it. It was really wasn't patient focused. It was setting an argument set for the insurance companies and the payers to be able to make decisions and have somebody to blame for <laughs> for the decisions they made. Yeah, I was going to say your use of the phrase argument set is highly descriptive in that context. Argument set for the insurance companies has a very clear, distinct kind of a connotation and direction to it. I think that's probably right, by the way. And I think that's where you then bring in, I thought they might have moved their position slightly from when they first published the document, but it sounds like they didn't. If you are going to make an argument for insurance companies, then there's enough data that suggests that even for the initial diagnosis of NAFLD or NASH, that the average patient within the US system costs £1,700 additional cost just to get to that diagnosis. So from insurance perspective, you need to use those arguments and they didn't seem to be in the document that I saw. And in fact, that document was, you can't have an FDA outcome that's regression if you don't have a progressive disease. So how can you have a, when they determined it wasn't a progressive disease? So they didn't really strike me as they knew the topic that they were reviewing other than two medications. Mike Bartel. I felt that the, my impression looking back was that the clinicians, the physicians were way more positive than the others on the call, right? And, you know, we can talk about the votes after if you want, but there was one that struck me the most, but there was 15 people that voted on on a couple of them. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) the results were literally fell off my chair. Other comments or should we let Mike talk about what drove him off his chair? Okay, Mike, what propelled you groundward? (laughs) Why did I fall off my chair? One of the questions that got me, and then there was the follow-up, of course, is the evidence adequate to demonstrate that the net health benefit of resmeterome is superior to that provided by lifestyle management alone? So my interpretation of the question is, do you think that the drug is offering any benefit over doing nothing except the lifestyle management? That's what they're asking, right? So for that one, it was eight to seven, barely in favor of treatment. And that wasn't bad enough. 
enough. So then they did it again and they asked the question again with obetacolic acid and it was 14 to 1. No, like 14 to 1. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You're not falling off your chair, Roger. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. Right now I'm moderating. If I betray emotion while moderating, it gets really ugly, really fast. So we'll come back to that in a second. Well, I would, I'd like to comment on that because I, Please was, go ahead. I was offended really by those votes. I couldn't believe that they actually came to that conclusion because, you know, it was it was basically saying <clears throat> if we approve this drug, then what people will do is take this instead of the standard of care, which is lifestyle. And nobody ever says that. I mean, it's it's insane to say, well, we're not going to tell you to go to change your weight and your lifestyle since we have this pill. So that was the implication of that vote is that this would replace standard of care rather than be an aid to the patient going through that same lifestyle journey. I'll defend that slightly and say that there is some history, for example, with statins of a significant number of patients taking statins and deciding as a result they did not need to change their diet. So there is that piece of history. Now, these drugs go back to the first time I ever spoke to this community, which is in Nashtag in 2019. These drugs are so different than statins in so many different ways. You can't define it. And I would not make that statement about this class of drugs. But if someone said to me, it's just like the statins, I would say, well, no, it's not. But that could be where they were coming from on that issue. Well, there are certainly going to be people that treat it that way. But that's certainly not the way that we as patient advocates would argue for it. It's not the way that physicians would argue for it. There will be people that do it, but it's not the it's not the role that we want them to take. I completely agree with you. Okay. Now, having said that about the statins, I completely agree with you. And I think that it's fallacious. It's, it's, it's bogus. There's, there's another word that begins with B that has eight letters in it. That's the one I want to use, but I'm not. To say that for a disease that has been this starved for medication for this long, people are going to take the disease and otherwise go on with their lives as it were. Or, or let me amend that. Otherwise, go back to bad diets and bad habits or never adopt good ones because now they've got a drug. That just doesn't fit this disease. That, that would be about lack of empathy. But back at where could data come from? I can see where someone could get there, but they'd be wrong, right? I suppose for me, it raises the question of rephrasing that question to say something along the line of, if you were to invest the same amount of money in lifestyle and changes and the, for the patients that you invest in the drugs, would the outcome of the drug be beneficial? That is a totally different question because we do not invest the same level of resources into saying, change your lifestyle, let's give you psychologists, let's give you dietetics, let's give you exercise programs, as we do when we develop these medications. So I think we're starting from a backward position. And I think the guys are right. Both medications have been shown to be efficacious, but they are not going to be for everybody and we do want to promote lifestyle so we do have to invest in that if we're not going to have to invest multiple billions just in a pill we need to get a plethora of options but we need to invest all the way up the system from that so i think the questions do need to be rephrased in a comparative world but we don't have a comparative world you know louise i think my own perspective and i'd be interested in what you guys think is that the reframing of the question is a very well certainly isn't a u.s point of view. Because in the U.S., people are going to spend, you know, the, the people are going to spend a lot of money on the drugs anyway, regardless of what they do with lifestyle and other issues. So it doesn't wind up becoming a where is the better place to spend your dollars. It becomes what's the incremental benefit of doing it. And now back to Roger. 
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week's topic's a bit up in the air, but all our options are superb. I'm sure you'll enjoy the episode. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.